You're listening to WARA, 1320 AM, Attleboro. Welcome to the WACS Daily News. Massachusetts Commissioner of Education Jeffrey Riley heard the concerns of teachers and students at Studley Elementary School Wednesday as he and several legislators took a tour of the school. My name is Jeff Riley. I'm the Commissioner of Education for the state of Massachusetts. And we heard great things about this school, so we wanted to come visit ourselves. I was very impressed. I got to come see um, kids really being engaged in their learning, right? They've got a maker space, this 3D printing going on. They were playing uh, with the technology with Gigi the Penguin with ST Math, which is an incredible program. It was the engagement in learning that was so special that took place here. When I go out to different schools, I like to meet with both the students and the teachers to find out what they have to say. I think as the new commissioner, it's important that I get to hear from the folks in the field and in the trenches doing the real work. And so I always try to talk to the kids and the teachers to hear about you know, what they think, where we should be going, what's working, what could be better. And uh, we had a great group today, a very lively discussion. I don't give advice to folks, but I think the most important thing I do for me personally is to remind myself uh, how hard it is to be a teacher. I teach, when I was a superintendent in Lawrence in my previous job, I would teach four times a year to remind myself how important this is. And as I started as commissioner, within the first few weeks, I was out teaching a class in North Adams, Massachusetts, because you have to remember what we're doing here, which is... Um, in these classrooms with our kids are these amazing educators and we haven't really taken the time to recognize how hard this is, number one, but also to celebrate and support them in their work. And I hope that uh, as I start this new role that's going to be paramount to what we do, which is celebrating and supporting our teachers. Just real happy to be here, impressed by the uh, political delegation that came out. It's clear that you've got representatives in this community that support their schools. That's it for today's update. You can watch all of our content by visiting our website, doubleecs.com, by checking out the WACS Roku channel, or by downloading the WACS mobile app. For WACS News, I'm Austin Ricketts. The Attleboro Public Library is beginning a new series called Book Chat with a Librarian. Reader's Advisory Librarian Elise LaForge will be available at the library on Thursday, December 13th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., Saturday, December 22nd from 1 to 2 p.m., and on Friday, December 28th from 10 to 11 a.m. to help you find your next great read. Whether you're looking to try something new or looking for something similar to an old favorite, Elise can help. Stop by the lobby on any of these days to have a book chat with a librarian. For more information and to see other events happening at the library, you can visit attleborolibrary.org or call 508-222-0157. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks has been part of the Attleboro area since 1906. They have always been involved in community service and charitable fundraising, giving back to our veterans, supporting our seniors, and providing youth enrichment opportunities, such as soccer and hoop shoots, fishing derbies, and dictionary projects while also providing academic scholarships. The Elks are over 800 strong locally and their members are their greatest asset. To learn more, you can go to attleboroelks.org. Remember, Elks care, Elks share.
Savannah communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1,900 hours, and you're listening to the Polo Saugero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Welcome back, folks, for another episode of the Polo Saugero Show. I actually need to edit that uh, little segment because we had, we were originally on uh, Wednesday evenings from 7 to 9. Uh, but now we're switched over. We're here every Saturday from 3 to 5, uh, and that'll be the schedule now. It's just it worked out a little bit better that way with my, my work schedule. And since, uh, you know, I didn't, rushing over here every single time, it didn't really give enough time to really get organized and, and whatnot. So we will be here every Saturday now from 3 to 5. So welcome back. Uh, today uh, we have a full show, two guests with us uh, from 3 to 4. We're going to be talking with uh, Lawrence Burgreen, who uh, uh, authored, uh, who is an author and historian, uh, wrote a book uh, on Al Capone, and this was a book that I ended up finding not too long ago. So I'm still in the process of of reading it, but it's a, I thought it was a pretty interesting segment uh, to do on Al Capone because we see a lot of movies, a lot of you know books we we see and read. So it's kind of I thought it was interesting to do a segment on this, and then from four to five we'll be talking with uh, UMass. Uh, Amherst Professor Francisco Fagundes, and we will be talking about Portuguese literature and uh, some uh, specific uh, books and um, and just different literature that that's out there. Uh, so, a little housekeeping uh, stuff first. Uh, we are still doing our hat and mitten drive here. Uh, again, like I said, we have uh, the studio here at WACS will be collecting um, hat and mittens. So, if anyone has hat and mittens, we'll be donating it to the St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, pantry, uh, food pantry. So, uh, you know, during we're, we're going to be handing it out after January, after the new year. So, uh, so if anyone has hat and mittens you'd like to donate, you can do so here at WACS Studio. You can go to the Dance Factory here in Attleboro, and then the Dunkin' Donuts on Pleasant Street, as well as on Washington uh, Street in South Attleboro. Uh, so, we're going to be doing that until January 10th, collecting them, and then um, afterwards, in mid January, we'll be handing it out to. Uh, the individuals at the food pantry, uh, they would get their food, and then on their way out, they'll be able to get a nice uh, uh, nice hat and a pair of mittens. Uh, but for first, we're going to be talking with uh, Mr. Bergreen, who I believe is uh, with us right now. Mr. Bergreen, can you hear us? Mr. Bergreen? Mr. Bergreen, can you hear us? I'm here. All right, there you go. Sorry about that. Uh, all righty, so we're going to uh, – let's get uh, started. So uh, for some of our listeners who uh, may or may not uh, know you, could you give us a little bit of background on yourself and experience and kind of um, what you have done and what you currently do? Sure. Uh, my name is Lawrence Bergery, and I'm a journalist and lecturer, uh, historian, and biographer. I spend most of my time writing books. I've uh, published 10, including – a biography of Capone, Al Capone, called Capone, The Man in the Era, which was published back in 1990. Uh, these days I write about exploration and discovery, kind of global subjects, but uh, back then I was writing on American subjects, and uh, Al Capone is one of those, uh, you know, American archetypes, a subject of eternal fascination, and I got interested in writing about him, uh, his roots in Brooklyn, and then uh, his uh, empire in Chicago is influenced around the country. Um, Capone, the Capone organization, the extended Capone family, which included eight or nine siblings, uh, I, I found really fascinating. Um, in some ways, you might say my book about Capone is more uh, sympathetic than some other portrayals. I don't think of him as a uh, hardened uh, 
killer. I think of him as a product of intense um, discrimination uh, at that time and social hypocrisy uh, typified by prohibition, but also a lot of other uh, anti-Italian and um, attitudes. Um, so he was a product of his time. And um, I spent several years working on the book. It was uh, finally published in 1994 by Simon and & Schuster and also in several foreign countries. Uh, Capone is a global figure. He's recognized virtually around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, as standing for something. Depends on, on who you talk to. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when I think of Capone or even some of these older, um, uh, you know, gangsters, if you will, I feel like they also have that same, uh, you know, you know, some people view as a hero or a villain, similar to, you know, Jimmy Hoffa and any really any anyone like uh, who was another one like John Dillinger. Some people have the same idea. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Capone filled a he filled a need. Um, he, he you know he would have been if uh, if it hadn't been for prohibition, which gave him an opportunity or an opening to gut, go on the wrong side of the law, as you would say. He would have been a very successful politician because he knew how to build uh, a coalition, which was uh, key. Um, people who knew him described him as being very articulate and soft spoken. You know, we we think of gangsters as that of that era as being, you know, grunting and groaning and, you know, speaking with their fists and their guns. But Capone wasn't like that. He, he was strategic. Uh, and, and you have to keep in mind how long, how short his, his reign was. He uh, was the, the, big, the big guy in Chicago by the age of 27. And uh, he was born in 1899. And by the time of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and 1929, um, his reign was beginning to end, and, you know, he was in jail from his mid-30s to the end of his life. He died in uh, uh, when he was in his late 40s. So he had a uh, short but, uh, you know, spectacular run as a um, criminal. You could say at the end of the day, what's, what's the moral of the story? And with Capone, you would say crime does not pay, which is true. He had a miserable end, uh, dying in a federal prison from syphilis and uh, but um, he uh, you know kind of filled became popular in American folklore as we all know there are countless books and plays and movies about Capone and you know his supposed nemesis Elliot Ness and you know legends about them so I think there's a kind of a eternal fascination of good versus evil and uh, as, I, as I mentioned I don't think Capone was entirely evil Absolutely, and so so basically, the the premise of our show, as our listeners know, is kind of it's yeah. a, it's an educational um, type of show. So for our listeners, uh, could could you begin with telling us a little bit about uh, the Prohibition era and, and just kind of putting it in perspective for for our listeners? Sure, um, it's it's hard to imagine, but uh, in the 1920s, uh, there this country was very very different. And there was a great, well, actually, in some ways, it's similar, because there was a great rival, rivalry between Americans who had been here for a long time and an influx of immigrants, especially from Italy, um, who were of a different religion. They tended to, tended to be Catholic, uh, or many of them were from Eastern Europe. They were Jewish or something else. And uh, American society in those days was uh, much more fragmented. So among the outsiders was... 
Al Capone. Um, and uh, they, they, they had a much harder time getting jobs. Um, we, we've heard stories about the signs uh, at many places that were hiring that said, no Irish need to apply. The Irish were other outsiders. Um, it's sort of hard to imagine now, but that's what it was, was like then. Um, at the same time, there was a great deal. This was the, we think of as the Roaring Twenties, a time of, a, you know, economic boom and uh, sort of lawlessness and, uh, you know, sort of free, free living. But that was for some people. Um, and for other people, it was a time of uh, poverty, of, uh, you know, starvation, um, people being left on the outside. You know, we now have a, a social um, safety net in place. And uh, although there's a lot of debate about what it con- should consist of, but in those days, there was no welfare system. Um, if, if you needed assistance, if you could find somebody to help you, like a family member, that was about as far as it went. Uh, so people were really on their own in this country, and that's where Capone came in. Um, one of his earliest things was trying to provide a, an unofficial safety net, which turned out to be a criminal organization, uh, for people who needed help. So he would give them jobs, whether they existed or not. He would give them money. Um, when, he lived, when he got into the bootleg booze business, oh, very important, when Prohibition came in, um, that created an entire illegitimate industry. If there had never been Prohibition, i.e., it was never illegal to sell alcohol liquor in this country, which it was for a long time, we never would have heard about Capone and many other gangsters because they wouldn't have been outlaws. Capone, for example, was an accountant at a construction firm in Baltimore. And from what I heard from family members when I interviewed the book, doing a very good job. He had a wife, he had a young son, and uh, nobody really thought of him as a criminal. It's just once Prohibition came in, you know, the, the ability to make unbelievable amounts of money, tax-free, from importing illegally importing uh, booze, but scotch and wine and so on from Canada, or rum through the Caribbean, was so appealing that, uh, you know, for people like Capone and others, it became absolutely irresistible. This was an unnecessary state of affairs, uh, but nevertheless, there it was. So Capone and many of his uh, affiliates took advantage of it. Uh, Capone wasn't the first one to do it, but he was, you know, remained uh, perhaps the best known. So that became the basis of this criminal empire was... uh, illegal or imported booze. And, uh, however, it was more than that, and it became more insidious, because uh, once they had that and they had various bars there was uh, and roadhouses around the country, there was what, what I call a trinity of vice. Uh, gambling went along with it. Gambling was illegal, but still is in, in many places or in most places, and also prostitution. Uh, so then it became really sinister and, uh, you know, a threat to the social fabric, but these three elements, gambling and booze and, and prostitution, uh, seem to go hand in hand, and so I called it a uh, trinity of vice, and that was really the, the damaging effect of these gangsters. Nevertheless, there was not a coordinated national uh, response to it. There was an FBI in those days that was just called the Bureau of, of Investigation. Um, Hoover, uh, Jagger Hoover, was was in control of it, but it was much smaller um, than it was now. Uh, Capone had a hand in transforming 
the role of the FBI in uh, pursuing gangsters in this country. But at, at that time, like everything else in federal government, it was much smaller and uh, more anarchic. Uh, but uh, slowly in the late 20s and things changed, I think if you had a pinpoint, you know, a turning point in all this, it was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre uh, on February 14, 1929, which crystallized all the problems with gangs um, in the public mind. Very interesting. Already, folks, we're in studio with Lawrence Bergreen talking about uh, kind of just the history of, of Al Capone, kind of the rise and uh, during his uh, career, and then later on we'll get to the like the fall, if you will, and kind of just putting everything in perspective of the Prohibition era. We're going to take our uh, our break, and then we're gonna, after these uh, quick messages, we'll come back with Mr. Uh, Bergreen and uh, talk a little bit more about Al Capone. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. On January 10th at 4.30 p.m. at the Attleboro Library, Gabriela Vieira of Webster Bank will present a workshop titled Preventing Elder Financial Abuse. The incidence of financial exploitation of elders and vulnerable adults is growing nationally. Fraudulent telemarketing schemes and scam artists increasingly target elders, resulting in significant financial losses. This workshop will provide an overview of the signs and symptoms of financial exploitation and fraud, and strategies for protecting assets. If you are interested in attending, you can call the Attleboro Council on Aging at 774-203-1900. Falls AC, 8-Stack Road in North Attleboro supports high school sports in our community at every level. Opened in the early 80s, owner Angelo Cavallari is proud of their 36 years of service to the Attleboros. Falls AC is open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 1 a.m. They have lunch and dinner daily, banquet rooms for your meetings or get-togethers, and dart leagues. The entire staff at Falls AC wishes the high school athletes the best of luck in every game. Falls AC, 8 Stack Road, North Attleboro, 508-695-2688. Join AACS this week as we showcase Beyond the Pipes, a concert celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Russell B. Richardson Memorial Organ. Learn the history behind the instrument and become lost in the moment as you listen to the universal language of music. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on the AACS Roku channel. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. We will, uh, we're here until 5 o'clock today. Uh, to today's first guest is uh, Mr. Lawrence Bergreen. We're talking about uh, his book that he well, was published in 1994, Capone, The Man and the Era. Kind of just putting everything in perspective, giving a little bit of history of uh, prohibition in general as well as uh, the life of Al Capone. Uh, Mr. Bergreen, before we uh, before our break, you know, we kind of put everything in perspective in terms of prohibition, and uh, you mentioned uh, bootlegging, prostitution, and gambling kind of essentially sparked the creation of uh, such criminals like Al Capone. And then you, we left off uh, discussing the, the Valentine's Day uh, Massacre. Could you tell our listeners yeah. a little bit about what, what this Valentine's Day Massacre uh, was? Just give us a little background about the entire What's it situation. all about? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, this book, uh, like my biography of Capone, is still in print um, and uh, in the Touchstone paperback, so it's it's is readily available. Uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, of course, took place in Chicago, which was um, ground zero for gambling and bootleg booze, partly because of geography, because it was on Lake Michigan. It was a very convenient place for a lot of booze to come into this country illegally from Canada. 
Um, also, it was known as a wide-open city where uh, criminal organizations, where gangsters or racketeers or whatever you want to call them, essentially controlled the city. Uh, there was a mayor, there was Big Bill Thompson, and there were politicians, but they were all owned by the racketeers. They were paid off uh, to, they were bribed to do their bidding or just to go away. They would, uh, you know, go to their uh, summer houses and, and leave town. So Chicago was run by um, the gangsters. You say, oh, my God, this is terrible, sounds horrible. Actually, um, it was better than these corrupt politicians because it meant that Chicago was sort of well-run uh, because the gangs had to get along with each other for commercial purposes. Among the best uh, run of them was Capone's gang, which I had mentioned, may have mentioned earlier, uh, was a coalition. Uh, gangs tended to fall out very strictly along ethnic lines. There were Italian gangs and Sicilian gangs and Jewish gangs and, and uh, Irish gangs, etc., etc. Capone tried to build a coalition. Uh, he even went so far as to involve black gangsters, which was uh, really a, a daring uh, maneuver at that point. But it gave him um, a lot of power and influence. And he was a popular fi figure, and he became, at a young age, in his late 20s, the unofficial mayor of Chicago, if you will. Uh, people often went to him to settle business disputes. As I mentioned, he provided employment for people. If you owned a truck, uh, and uh, he, he, he would pay you to transport booze around. If you had a garage, he would pay you to park his um, booze-transporting trucks in it. So... In this way, he had a lot of uh, people in the, in the city um, on the take. Uh, but he also had some bitter rivals, and one of them was an Irish gangster. When I say Irish, Irish-American, Bugs Moran, who was in his day almost as uh, legendary as um, uh, Capone's gang. He had the Bugs, had the North Side gang, and uh, they, they were deadly rivals. Um, Capone decided that he had had enough of them, and he wanted to rub them out. So he did it in a very dramatic way. Uh, we still don't know all the details of what happened. Um, but what we do know is on the morning, on Valentine's Day morning, um, seven members of the Bugs Morang gang were murdered. Now, what's so unusual, but it looked like two of the gunmen were policemen, except they weren't. Uh, they were uh, gang gunmen affiliated with the Bugs Moran gang who had stolen police uniforms to impersonate police and confuse everybody. So uh, when witnesses happened to see these, you know, police in costume, gangsters in costume, uh, leading other men at gunpoint um, uh, away from the shooting and towards the shooting, uh, they didn't realize it was a gangland shooting in progress. Um, so this was a very clever strategy. Well, after all these dead bodies were found at the uh, end of this uh, uh, massacre, uh, there was a huge outcry, not only around Chicago, uh, but um, all over the country. And there were so many peculiar details. There was one uh, uh, almost survivor uh, named uh, Frank Gusenberg. He took 14 bullets, um, and he survived for several hours. So, of course, when the real police got to him, they wanted to know who did it, who committed this outrage. And he said, you know, uh, the, the, his undying words were, 
nobody shot me. And then he, shortly after that, he died of his 14 bullet wounds. Um, okay, so at that point, it became apparent that gangs were a national problem, not just in Chicago, also in New York, and all around the country. Uh, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover uh, became much more involved, and uh, there was a great effort then to round up uh, people like Capone. Capone became public enemy number one. Uh, so everybody wanted to get him. Eventually, um, he was apprehended and tried. But as we all know, the, the, the trick was, what, what do you try him for? How do you get a jury uh, to convict in a hometown uh, uh, somebody who's uh, a murderer? In those days, when there was a trial, they printed the names and home addresses of jurors, which was had a very intimidating influence on jurors, especially if it was a violent crime. You weren't about to put somebody away when everybody knew your name and address uh, and could come after you for retribution. So uh, the government who was going after Capone and the Internal Revenue Service decided to take a different tax. Of course, Capone couldn't file income taxes on stolen goods, so they went after him for his taxes. And they felt that the common man, or the man in the street, if you will, could uh, would, would be actually more upset by somebody who was not paying his taxes the way everybody else was. So they didn't try and get Capone on murder, even though he had been involved in so many. Uh, they tried to get him, and they succeeded on getting him for unpaid income tax. And on that basis, they obtained a conviction from a jury, which didn't feel they were doing something that would be life-threatening, because it seemed to them a rather dry and technical uh, uh, exercise. Um, So Capone was put away. He went through a series of jails. At first, he was in Atlanta, and eventually he became one of the first prisoners in a brand-new Supermax prison that was called Alcatraz uh, off the coast of San Francisco. And, um, you know, he became uh, Exhibit A for what happens to super criminals. Uh, his organization, though, was not really broken. Uh, many of these criminal organizations, which exist, by the way, in some form today still, uh, continued because he had uh, eight brothers and a sister who were involved in it, many other allies, and uh, they carried on quite well without him. Uh, so they continued to import booze. And until Prohibition was repealed when FDR became president, uh, the, the problem continued. That really was the underlying problem, was, was prohibition, which made uh, criminals out of so many people who would otherwise be law-abiding. And uh, that's... Um, so, but, but Capone, you know, became the poster boy, if you will, for uh, the, you know, lawlessness of the 20s and the whole lifestyle, the wild lifestyle of the Jazz Age. Now, Capone himself was not a wild, violent figure. Um, As I mentioned, he was soft-spoken. He was beautifully tailored. Uh, He was married. Uh, He kept to himself. Uh, When he wasn't in Chicago, he hid out in uh, uh, some other cities and towns in Michigan. I visited some of those places. Um, He did not come from a crime family. If you've seen The Godfather, you think of a... a, uh, you know, lots of Capones all over. Um, as soon as uh, women got married, they were very happy to change their name to something else. 
and uh, none of the other people in succeeding generations of his family uh, stayed in organized crime. Uh, some became teachers, some became went into the military, some became lawyers. Uh, in other words, they went on to uh, legitimate uh, lifestyles. This was not a long-standing criminal tradition. And as I mentioned, when when he first came, he, when when he first started out, he was an accountant. He never set out to be a criminal. So you know, so so many of these social conditions, the extreme anti-immigrant prejudice, um, the folly of prohibition, you know, created these uh, conditions where this kind of um, corruption and violence could could uh, grow. Uh, also, Capone was associated with a new weapon of uh, violence. It seemed like mass murder at the time, and that was the machine gun, the Tommy gun. Um, this was a legacy of the First World War, and uh, it was, of course, different from a pistol or a rifle, because with a machine gun, you could massacre many more people. And Capone and other gangsters became associated with them, and so they became you know, ever more lethal uh, with, with these uh, weapons. And this also upped the ante and increased uh, the sense of danger in this country. That's why there was such a, eventually such a big reaction from the FBI to uh, make cities and communities safer. Um, although keep in mind that it's a little bit uh, uh, paradoxical. Uh, the police were so corrupt that many people felt safer around the, quote, gangsters or racketeers than they did around the corrupt police uh, because the uh, gangsters or racketeers, uh, you know, tended to protect their own. And uh, Capone was, was certainly one of them. You know, in another, in another lifetime, he might have been a very successful politician. And uh, he certainly had the, the, quote, what we now call people skills uh, to, to be one. He loved to give press conferences. He loved to be in public. He appeared at baseball games and boxing matches. And, you know, was not hiding in the shadows. Uh, and, uh, you know, considered himself, you know, a real American in, in his fashion, if you will. Very interesting. We're going to take uh, our 3.30 break, and then I have a few follow-up questions uh, that I was jotting notes down uh, when we come back. So, alrighty, folks, we're in studio uh, with uh, Lawrence Bergreen, who is the author and historian. We're talking about uh, his book, Capone, the Man in the Era, and then uh, for, stuck around So, because from... Uh, we'll be here until 4 o'clock, and then from 4 to 5, we'll be talking for a professor from UMass Amherst, uh, Professor uh, Francisco Fagundes, and we'll be discussing um, uh, Portuguese literature in general and then uh, some of the current projects that he's working on. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. The Attleboro Public Library is beginning a new series called Book Chat with a Librarian. Reader's Advisory Librarian Elise LaForge will be available at the library on Thursday, December 13th from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., Saturday, December 22nd, from 1 to 2 p.m., and on Friday, December 28th, from 10 to 11 a.m., to help you find your next great read. Whether you're looking to try something new or looking for something similar to an old favorite, Elise can help. Stop by the lobby on any of these days to have a book chat with a librarian. For more information and to see other events happening at the library, you can visit attleborolibrary.org or call 508 222 0157. 
Mental health, just like physical health, is an important part of every person's overall well-being. Learn about the many issues surrounding mental health by listening to our new show, Exploring Mental Illness, everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask, on Mondays at 6 p.m. on WARA 1320 AM. You can also listen for free by subscribing to the Exploring Mental Illness podcast on the iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn platforms. Find out more information by going to WARARadio.com and clicking on podcasts. Welcome back, folks, to the Paul Sogero Show. We'll be here until 5 o'clock. Uh, today's guest is Lawrence uh, Bergreen, and we are discussing uh, Al Capone, the Prohibition era in general, and kind of the rise and fall of Al Capone. Uh, so, so far we've discussed uh, kind of the rise of Al Capone, Valentine's Day uh, Massacre, uh, kind of the Prohibition in general involving kind of the the three things that were really prominent at the time, bootlegging, prostitution, and gambling. Uh, Mr. Bergen, I had a, a follow-up. Something I find interesting about Al Capone is that we see all the criminal activity he was involved in, and yet he was convicted of you know, tax evasion, but eventually ended up in Alcatraz. Yeah. I was always under the impression that Alcatraz was kind of, you know, hardcore criminals, like you said. Uh, it's uh, maximum security, but... Yeah. If, he, if he was just convicted of tax evasion, how did he end up in Alcatraz? Ah, because they wanted the government wanted to make a high-profile symbol of Capone, because even though he had been convicted only of uh, income tax evasion, nevertheless everybody knew he was the Al Capone, who was head of uh, the you know the outfit, uh, as it was called in Chicago. And uh, that's that's why it was important to put him there. Also, by the time he got there, his health was failing. And I think many Americans, if you would ask them, uh, and by the time especially World War II started uh, in, in 1941, whatever happened to Al Capone, they would scratch their heads and they would say, gee, that's a good question. Where is he? Did he die? Is he alive? Is he in jail? And they forgot about him. Uh, they forgot about him for two reasons, I think. One is that um, World War II uh, became such a huge, overwhelming story and dominated the national agenda for years afterwards and was far bigger than, than gangsters and prohibition. The second thing was that Capone's health broke down. Now, in my book, Capone and the, uh, pro, uh, the Man in the Era, uh, I, I trace the course of his syphilis. And um, I, it's an interesting disease, and if you could bear with me, uh, uh, just for a minute about it, I want to give you, your listeners, just a few facts about it. Uh, syphilis heals itself 90% of the time. It, it goes away like a common cold. So, and in those days where there were many uh, uh, prostitutes, the people like Capone were uh, uh, frequenting houses of prostitution, uh, syphilis was common. We know, for example, that his brothers had it as well as he. How do we know that? Because many of them went to prison, and they, they had medical tests, and I looked at their medical records and, and found this out, and it was publicly available. They recovered spontaneously, you know, like a cold going away. Capone was in that unlucky 10% where uh, the syphilis, the spirochete, sheet, goes into your nervous system and hides there. And it could hide there for a number of years. It could hide there for decades. And then it reemerges um, as both tertiary syphilis or neurosyphilis, which is much more serious. So this is what happened to Capone. He thought, well, he didn't have any, whatever it was, if he had syphilis, it, it went away. But when he was in Alcatraz, it suddenly reemerged with 
devastating effect. And um, it, it, it uh, destroyed his mental capacity. He spent the rest of his life, he only lived to be 47, um, in a daze and didn't process very well uh, the things that were going on around him. And uh, there, there are some scenes that I recount in my book that are pathetic of his being taunted by other prisoners there and uh, his um, behavior, which had regressed to uh, a feral level. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's appalling. Now, you say, well, what about treatment for syphilis? He came along just at the cusp. Um, uh, Sir Alexander Fleming in England had discovered finally after centuries a cure for syphilis, which was penicillin. And uh, that was happening just at the outbreak of, just during World War II. And Capone, actually, was one of the first people to get treatment for it. And so, in some sense, he was a kind of a VIP. However, his case was too advanced for it to help, because uh, a penicillin can arrest the course of syphilis, but it cannot reverse the course of syphilis. So, Capone got some treatment, stopped getting worse, but he sure didn't recover. So he was, um, you know, very, very uh, incapacitated and impaired uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, eventually, uh, you know, syphilis, uh, penicillin became, you know, a very widespread uh, treatment, still is, uh, for uh, diseases like that. So Capone was just a little bit too late. Uh, to get the benefit of it, and he was very unlucky that he was in that uh, had the kind of syphilis that was uh, so destructive. So that had a big bearing on his behavior. For example, we all know that wonderful movie, The Untouchables, with Robert De Niro and uh, Kevin Costner, who who's, uh, plays Elliot Ness. And um, in that scene has the famous movie has the famous baseball bat scene where Capone wants to intimidate some rivals at a dinner and pulls out a baseball bat at a banquet and bashes one of his rivals on the head and busts his head open, and it's a striking scene. And uh, even though that's a movie, uh, that's more or less true, and that's what happened. Now, you you heard me say earlier that Capone was known for being, you know, rather quiet and uh, not violent, Uh, but that was the earlier Capone. Here, in a scene like that, which was later Capone, you see the effect of the syphilis which made him extremely irritable, extremely temperamental, and violent. It changed his whole behavior. So to a certain extent, the course of Capone's career is a story of the effect of syphilis on it. And, uh, you know, a rather, you know, dramatic effect. Uh, One other thing, a footnote I should mention about that movie, which I most enjoyed, is, uh, you know, Kevin Costner's portrayal of Elliot Ness we all know about Elliot Ness and the Untouchables and his efforts to get Capone. I have to tell you, it's pretty much a myth. Now, <laughs> Elliot Ness had about as much to do with Al Capone as I did. Um, a little bit, but uh, he took a lot of credit for it posthumously. After Elliot Ness had died, and he was an alcoholic, he died early from alcoholism, um, and Capone died, um, there was a, a, a memoir that he published called The Untouchables with a ghostwriter named Oscar Fraley. And that book was plucked out of obscurity to become the basis first for the TV series with Robert Stack, which went on for years, um, and then for the movie. Uh, but a lot of it was a myth. It was like making up a Western about um, 
who knows, the Lone Ranger or something. It was uh, mostly fiction. Now, there was nobody around to point that out, and it was certainly entertaining fiction, and it was based in reality. There, these were real people, but uh, there was almost no confrontation between Elliot Ness and uh, Al Capone whatsoever. Uh, Elliot Ness actually left Chicago, uh, went to Cleveland, ran unsuccessfully for mayor. His his uh, campaign was cut short when he got caught in a um, drunk driving accident. Um, he was a big womanizer. That was also another problem uh, for him politically. Uh, so the the rather saintly Elliot Ness you see in that movie or in other portrayals is largely a, a, a myth of uh, mass media. Um, so, uh, but I guess he fills a kind of a an antidote to Capone that the you know popular imagination needs. And um, so that's you know Capone was uh, you know uh, really brought down by syphilis as much as as anything else. And uh, if he hadn't had syphilis, I don't think the government ever would have caught him. Yeah, absolutely. It's great you bring up the baseball bat scene because that's that was going to be my next transition because it's always I always wonder about you know these movies how much of it is the Hollywood implemented how much of it is actually accurate because we obviously know there's always right. some exaggeration involved. Um, one thing I was always curious about too, like even uh, in terms of organized crime in the mafia, if you even look back to in Sicily, it's where. Uh, you know, you mentioned where people kind of look to, to Capone, uh, Capone for help, and I think that's kind of the same way, just organized crime in general, even in Sicily, yeah. when we look at people looked at these organizations for help when the government wasn't there. And in my opinion, I feel like that's why, you know, we have this hero versus villain type of person. Um, in your own opinion, why do you think uh, that really exists, uh, the kind of people viewing someone as a villain or some people viewing that same person as a hero? Um, wh why do you think that is? Well, I think it depends on whose side you're on, if you're aligned with an organized crime syndicate or not. But I have to uh, mention something to you, which you're, you're probably aware of. I'm terrified of the mafia. So was Al Capone. He was terrified of the mafia. He was terrified of civilians. His family was from Naples. There was a deadly rivalry between the Sicilians um, who uh, uh, were in the mafia and the people who came from um, Naples, there was no mafia there. There was, a, there was a different kind of organization called the Camorra, which started in the prisons there. And that was based more on uh, financial, on lotteries and things like that, and a different kind of corruption. So uh, there were, uh, Capone had, had a couple of Sicilian gunmen, Scalise and Anselmi, that he kept on the payroll, but he kept them at arm's length. And uh, he stayed away from them. So uh, he was much more afraid of them than he was of the police, for example. And, yep, you know, it's uh, kind of a quirk in the, you know, we, we, we tend to uh, compress or, or streamline, you know, gangsters by different kinds of, uh, you know, ethnic groups. But, you know, they looked at things very differently. And the, the mafia was a, a group that was uh, kind of some, somewhat mystical in a way. Um, unto itself, and Capone came from a much more, I don't know, modern, if you will, uh, business-like offshoot, this, this uh, Camorra, uh, and uh, he, he didn't want any part of the mafia. Absolutely. Uh, already, folks... 
we're, we're going to take our, our next break, and then when we come back, we'll, we'll begin to wrap uh, this interview up. Again, we're talking with uh, Mr. Lawrence uh, Berggreen, talking about Al Capone, kind of prohibition in general. Uh, we, we did a great uh, kind of bio on Al Capone, the rise, the fall, prohibition in general, and talking about kind of this hero-villain um, uh, aspect that just uh, individuals have. Uh, so stick around. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back after these messages. On January 10th at 4.30 p.m. at the Attleboro Library, Gabriela Vieira of Webster Bank will present a workshop titled Preventing Elder Financial Abuse. The incidence of financial exploitation of elders and vulnerable adults is growing nationally. Fraudulent telemarketing schemes and scam artists increasingly target elders, resulting in significant financial losses. This workshop will provide an overview of the signs and symptoms of financial exploitation and fraud, and strategies for protecting assets. If you are interested in attending, you can call the Attleboro Council on Aging at 774-203-1900. For over 47 years, Amigo Inc. has been offering services and programs for children and adults with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities. Located at 33 Perry Avenue in Attleboro, Amigo has been committed to building vital relationships while expanding their community ties on the local level. Amigo provides day programs, transitional planning, and a continuum of services to support all ages. For more information, you can visit their website at AmigoInc.org. Welcome back, folks, to the Paul Salguero Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock today. Uh, inst- talking with us today uh, to begin their show is Lawrence Berggreen. We're talking about uh, a book he wrote, uh, Capone, The Man and the Error, uh, which was published in 1994. And uh, M- Mr. B- uh, Berggreen, uh, people can still purchase this book. And if they were interested in, in purchasing any of your books, uh, how can they do so? Well, in bookstores or on Amazon, you know, the usual ways. There, uh, This book was published by Simon & Schuster and uh, Touchstone, a big publisher, so uh, it should be readily available. Um, and, uh, you know, same with my the other books I've written. Absolutely. So, again, since uh, before we, because uh, I want to get to uh, kind of your current projects, but as we wrap up with Capone, is there any, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there's one more thing I was curious about. Sure. Uh, so, Again, I, I've seen so many different numbers about, um, you know, the amount of money some of these uh, gangsters would make. And, and there's, it varies so much depending on who, what, what you're looking at. Uh, you know, one said that uh, Capone's crime gang made, uh, you know, $100 million annually. Uh, d- during your research, did you find an accurate number? And kind of how can we really prove um, the amount of money these uh, uh, criminals would, were making? I think your point is well taken. Uh, there really isn't a... A way to prove it because they weren't paying taxes. Uh, they really didn't want to boast about it, and uh, so there's no. And the records that they kept were, you know, deliberately deceptive. So I mean, I, I the risk of being uh, facetious, sadly facetious. I think it's safe to say Capone made a ton of money, and he was for a brief while one of the wealthiest men in the country, men in the country. But you know, none of this uh, devolved on any of his family members after he went to jail. Um, any assets of his that the government could find, they seized. So uh, his widow, his wife, his widow, didn't wind up uh, with any great wealth, particularly. And, uh, you know, I think you remember that um, that TV show that was, that was about 20 years ago with Geraldo Rivera, Capone Safe, and they were, they were going to find his uh, fortune. And, uh, you know, he finally got inside the safe on 
live television, and it was empty. Um, I've heard for rumors, Capone grew up in, in Brooklyn, um, that uh, he had stored a lot of his money in the walls of the house that he'd grown up in, in Brooklyn. And uh, when people finally you know, went into the walls to, to look for it, there, there was nothing there, of course. That was another tall tale. So uh, the, the money, um, be, because it was uncategorized un, uh, and untracked, uh, quickly disappeared. And, uh, you know, all the other gangsters, I guess, helped themselves to it. Uh, Capone uh, mainly was interested in not getting shot. You know, he was uh, constantly moving around and afraid of assassination. And uh, that was his main uh, concern was was staying alive uh, rather than accumulating money. Um, he uh, he was interested in finance. As I, as I said in my bank, in my book, he'd rather own a bank then rob a bank. Uh, you know, he wanted to be on the legitimate side of business. He wanted to be in control rather than an outlaw. And uh, earlier in the program, you had mentioned, uh, was it Bonnie and Clyde or John Dillinger? You know, it came just a little bit later, and it was a big difference because that was after the Depression started, and people were suddenly really poor. And Bonnie and Clyde, Dillinger, and many others uh, were outlaws. Uh, they were loaners, and uh, they, they literally were robbing banks because they needed money. Capone and people like Bugs Moran and people of that slightly earlier generation were interested in pioneering corporate crime. In other words, they were building big criminal organizations. So uh, they, they saw themselves you know, in an entirely different light, and uh, as entrepreneurs and businessmen, as, as legitimate figures rather than people who were rebels or, or beyond the law. Capone saw himself as an establishment figure. Hard to believe, but it's true. Absolutely. And uh, we're gonna get, uh, I'd like to do one more quick uh, fun fact because I think this is probably a common yeah. thing people uh, uh, would ask. Uh, you know, everyone's seen the movie Scarface, right, with Al Pacino, but yet Al Capone yeah. eventually ended up with that nickname. Could you tell us... Uh, the brief story kind of behind how Al Capone ended with uh, the nickname Scarface? Oh, yes. Um, he got into a knife fight when he was in Brooklyn uh, with a, uh, a local uh, tough guy, uh, or hoodlum, and uh, who gave him that ferocious scar on his, on his cheek. I think they were got into a fight over a woman, and he was a young man. He was always sort of ashamed of that scar and tried to cover it up with makeup. Um, and always wanted to be photographed on the other side of his face so the scar wasn't prominent. And he really disliked the name Scarface. Uh, that was, uh, you know, to him, like, a, you know, infamy. He, he, he wanted to be a respectable figure. So that's the story behind it. Interestingly, he l- allowed the guy who uh, scarred him, his face, to live because he figured that if he was killed, everybody would know that Al Capone was the culprit and it would come back to haunt him and wind up in jail. So he let him live. Absolutely. And uh, so since uh, this book being uh, made, uh, I know it's been quite the years, uh, what are some of your, your current projects you're working on now and uh, kind of whereabouts, you know, just kind of what you're working on now? Sure. Well, I live in New York City. I, I travel a lot. Uh, and I, these days I've been, I write about exploration and discovery. I've written about uh, several uh, explorers, um, uh, Ferdinand Magellan, Christopher Columbus, 
Uh, at the moment, I'm writing a book about uh, Sir Francis Drake and Queen Elizabeth. This is all the 16th century and the, the age of discovery. Um, and uh, they tend to be more true, but they're, they're, they're adventure stories. Uh, and the Drake book is the one that's keeping me busy uh, at the moment. Um, I don't know if I'll ever go back to writing about another criminal figure or gangster, or though, although uh, Francis Drake was a pirate, and he was, a, you know, in his day, a kind of a, a criminal figure. Not kind of, but, but he was. Um, and uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, and I think this is uh, my 11th book that I'm, that I'm working on now. Very good, very good. Um, uh, a thing uh, that we kind of put together in our, our show, it's been like a little uh, kind of addition we always add towards the end of it, is I like to ask our guests, if you could talk to anyone from history and, and ask them uh, one question, uh, who would you want to talk to and what would you want to ask them? Oh, gosh. You know, I was puzzling over that question. I get that and a lot. I, <laughs> uh, I tell you, I could, I could give you one answer, I could give you a hundred answers, you know, I have to tell you, my all-time, this is, this is too specialized an answer, my all-time favorite writer is James Joyce, who was, of course, Irish. And I always wished I could have met James Joyce, who died in the early years of the 20th century, and, and talked to him. But this is a very specialized figure. If anybody else in history, uh, you know, I don't, I'll tell you, it's, it's really tough to imagine who I'd want to interview and ask yeah if it's sometimes i like to say uh because this one's a little bit tough but if i could uh you know if you could have dinner with three historical figures kind of uh, what are the three people you'd, oh, you'd want to have oh, oh 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 yeah uh, uh for sure i would say three historical figures i'd probably want uh if, assuming that jesus is a historical figure jesus uh, Ferdinand Magellan, who was the uh, subject of uh, my seventh book, Over the Edge of the World, and um, the third, and it was deeply religious, so they would they would be compatible. Um, the third figure, you know, I don't know, probably a great artist of some sort, perhaps, perhaps Leonardo, perhaps uh, I have a feeling Beethoven was. Was not that charming in person. <laughs> Mozart, Mozart. I would have to say Mozart. Mozart. Sure. There you go. composer. That's pretty good. <laughs> um, as we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to, um, you know, mention? Maybe we didn't cover, or anything you want to um, make sure you, you you let our listeners know. Or well, I think it's uh, you know when we talk about the gangsters, we you know we always see them through the lens of uh, bias, and I think it's important. Uh, to keep with people like Capone and others from that era in the 20s, keep in mind the conditions that uh, caused them to behave and live the way they did. They were responding to huge injustices in society, and that's why they were popular among many people, because they, they seemed to be, if you will, folk heroes, uh, because they were not allowing themselves to be uh, diminished and oppressed uh, by a very hypocritical establishment. Uh, things changed a lot in the 1930s, but uh, especially in the 20s, this sort of um, hypocrisy uh, flourished. Um, and as I said, it reminds me anyway of a, a lot of things that are going on today uh, in this country and, and maybe some other countries. Uh, you know, there's always going to be criminals uh, around. 
And I remember that something that, um, was it Solzhenitsyn said? It's just a kind of a, uh, you know, the Russian dissident writer. It's one of the ills of democracy. Um, if you have, on the other hand, a totalitarian state uh, like the Soviet Union uh, or some other country, then you don't have criminals because the state is a criminal organization. So it's probably preferable uh, to have uh, a democracy, you know, with with uh, some imperfections uh, rather than the other way around. Yeah, that's probably the best way uh, to uh, to put it. Uh, Alrighty, folks. So that's Lawrence Bergreen. Uh, again, uh, you can find his book uh, or any of his books uh, online uh, or the bookstores wherever you guys go. Just uh, you can find it. Uh, the one we were discussing today is Capone, the Man and the Era. Uh, uh, Mr. Bergreen, I just like to thank you again for joining us today. And, uh, and thanks uh, for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Show. Uh, Alrighty, folks. We're gonna uh, take. Um, we're gonna put on. Uh, I have Billy Joel, New York State of Mind, up ready, and then we <laughs> will. <laughs> I'm a big Billy Joel fan, <laughs> but uh, great. But we're gonna put New York State of Mind. We'll go into our break, and then we'll be getting ready for uh, Professor Fagundes. Uh, again, Mr. Bergreen, thank you so much for uh, for You're joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Alrighty, folks. There you have it. That was uh, Lawrence Bergreen again. It's. Uh, remarkable book that I, uh, I've began reading kind of talks about uh, it's not just uh, the Capone, uh, Capone in general but it really talks about the era the cultural aspects of it and kind of like the birth of uh, these, the criminals and the kind of this crime in general thank you everyone and have a wonderful if I can figure out this <laughs> a wonderful weekend <laughs>